Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, praise team. Beautiful song, beautiful worship today. So glad to have you here in God's house today. We're glad that you're here to worship with us. I want you to take your Bibles today to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're coming back to our series in the book of Mark, Join the Journey. And uh, I want to kind of focus on this section of Scripture here, verses 30 to 50. It's quite lengthy, but I believe it all fits together in a context. And so I want to kind of keep it all there together. Let me say I want to thank everyone who came out with us yesterday to Randleman Road where we started Destiny Church and walked around uh, to the abortion clinic and had a praise service and prayer and just a wonderful time except for the the deluge of rain that came down upon us while we walked over there. We got soaked basically with our umbrellas and uh, anyways, I really appreciate all who came out for that and I thank you for that and it's a wonderful, wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to do can't think of anything better than to pray and praise God in the face of evil and to lift him up. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful testimony. All right, Mark chapter 9. Stand with me now as we read God's word together today. Verse 30. I'll go all the way through 50, so hang with me. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples, telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. You may be seated. That's some sobering stuff right there. One thing that I'm going to do is try my best to teach you this passage of Scripture and how it comes together. The best way I know how to do it is I call the sermon, The Recipe for Greatness. The Recipe for Greatness. 
Now, as we get into this, I want you to remember kind of the theme of Mark here. Satan always gives you his glory first, and then he gives you the pain after. Okay? Jesus always offers you his glory last, and he offers you his suffering first. So Jesus is suffering first, glory later. Satan is glory first, pain later. You need to remember that because Satan will always give you his best first. Jesus will always give you his best last. He saves the best for last. This is a hard concept to get a hold of in the scriptures, but this is what Mark is focusing on here. Jesus is telling them again, on the way. That's the key phrase. You heard it twice in the reading of scripture. On the way. It's the second act of Mark from chapter 8 through chapter 11. He is on the way to Jerusalem. And in this portion, this section of Act 2, he is beginning to expose to him what his true agenda is, to suffer, to die, and to rise from the dead. They didn't get that. They couldn't understand that. They don't want him to suffer. They don't want him to die. They don't want to rise from the dead. They just want to set up the kingdom now, become a military leader now, Jesus. Kill Caesar if you have to. Release and free your people from their captivity and let the kingdom usher in. That's what they had in their mind. They disregarded all of the Old Testament first coming passages and reinterpreted them. And they only focused on the second coming passages. But Jesus is going to have two comings. And he taught them that clearly on the way. I'm going to come. I'm going to die. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise from the dead. Okay? And they quite couldn't mask or, or, or couldn't quite handle that teaching. They took scriptures that they wanted to hear and they denied scriptures they didn't want to hear. We're, we're all kind of like that. We, we have certain verses that we go to and they're the ones on our heart and the other ones we kind of tend to avoid and we don't really bring those into our life. So they, they did the same thing we do. I mean, like, for example, one of my favorite verses is, Wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands. I love that verse. That should be my star verse. And then the one about Christ dying for the church and husbands to die for the church as Christ did. That's okay. That's okay. But, but I like the verse. See, we all have these kind of things in our lives that we have these walls up that we, we can't get through and let the Scriptures and the, and the Spirit of God speak to us because we've kind of got these things that keep us from that. And so... I'm going to talk to you about that today because Jesus realizes they don't get it. He's saying there's a criminal cross for me, and if you're going to follow me, there's going to be a cross for you. There's just no way around that to be a follower of Christ. You're going to go through suffering at different levels and different intensities and different things. So over and over, he realizes they don't get it. So the last time he is in Galilee before he rises from the dead, he teaches them the recipe for greatness. That's what I call it, the recipe for greatness. So I've outlined it around this theme, the recipe for eternal greatness in the eyes of God, both now in this life and for eternity. What is the recipe for greatness? Number one, humility. Humility. This is in verse 30 to 37 where he talks on the way to Galilee and he says, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised from the dead but I'm going to do it for you. That's what he's telling them. I'm going to do it for you. And what are they doing? Jesus asked them, said, uh, hey, what were you all talking about there on the way? And uh, uh, verse 33 says he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? <laughs> okay, what were they doing? They weren't discussing. They were bickering. 
they were arguing. They were getting into a heated debate about who is the greatest. And so it is an amazing thing. Jesus comes and says, now let me ask you something. You guys were back there on the way and we were heading to Jerusalem. What were you talking about? What's their answer? The Bible says they kept silent. They didn't have an answer because they were embarrassed to have the answer because what they were concerned about is who's the greatest? Who is the greatest? And they're, uh, they're, they're arguing about that. So they're filled with shame and embarrassment that Jesus confronts them about that. And what they should have been thinking about is who really is the greatest and who was the greatest? Jesus. But they, but they, don't, they don't see that. They're talking about what are we going to get? When we come into our kingdom, what are we going to get when Jesus takes over Rome? And what's it going to be for us? And, and am I going to sit on, my, on his right hand? Am I going to be on his left? Do I get to oversee the coast of Caesarea Philippi overlooking the Mediterranean Sea? That's what I want. I want to have that location of land. And, and that's the kind of stuff they're talking about. And uh, Jesus is just like, you don't get it. You don't get it. I've spent almost three years with you, and you're arguing over who's the greatest. Now, here's the deal. Okay, you may have followed Jesus for over three years, and sometimes you don't get it. I don't get it. For example, we like to argue over things too. Who is the greatest singer of all time? I could go around this room, and I'd get 10 different answers. Some of you would be Elvis. <laughs> you'd say Elvis is the greatest. Some of you would say Celine Dion. Some of you would say Taylor Swift. Because... You don't want to just talk about the great, you want to talk about the greatest. The greatest. There's something in us that drives us to want to know who is the great. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? I mean, you'll go back and forth over that all the time. Who's the greatest basketball team of all time? And over and over, we love to get in these arguments about who is the greatest. Who is the greatest politician? We probably don't argue over that much, all right? But I'll just pass on that. It's not enough to just say a person's great. But who's the great among the greatest? That's what we want to know. That's what we want to believe in. That's what we like to talk about. That's what we put on Facebook. That's what we put on our Twitter. Because we want to talk about who is the greatest. Now, of course, we all know it's Muhammad Ali. He told us it himself. He said, I am the greatest. So it's, I guess it's kind of settled from there. But the disciples should have asked the question about the one who was and is the greatest. Now, this really bothered Jesus. This spirit within us bothered Jesus. So the Bible says he sat down, verse 35, sitting down. Now, if a rabbi sits down, that means he's going to teach him. So in their day, the rabbi sat down to teach. Everybody else stood. In our day, you sit down, I stand. All right, but in their day, Jesus would have sat down. That means, hey, listen up. I got some formal teaching to do, and I want you to get this. Come on in. Come on in here, okay? So he gets them all close to him, and he says to them, you want to be great? Learn how to be a servant. You want to know who is the greatest in eternity? The servants. You want to be first? Learn to be last. Now that just stripes against everything inside of us. He turns the values and aspirations of all human beings upside down. No other religious leader thought and talked like this. We are all born with the aspiration to be significant. We all want to make our lives count. We all want to do something that's important. We don't want to fail. And the last thing we want is to come in last. Because nobody wants to be in last place. Nobody. Nobody wants to be in last place. 
We aren't even satisfied with mediocrity. What we dream of is winning. We want to win. We want to win whatever we want to win at, success, getting to the top, whatever that may be, beyond greatness. Oh, the glory, oh, the glory it would be to be the greatest, to be the greatest. That's in us. Nietzsche called it, the great philosopher Nietzsche called it, the will to power, the will to power. It, it's in the heartbeat of us all, the will to power, to scale the corporate ladder, to get up to the top, to be the king of all. Just ticks in our heart. And Jesus says, okay, he says, you really want that? I said, what you really want? You want it now, and you want it in eternity. He says, let me give you the recipe. You must choose to be last. You must choose that. Be a servant of all. Now, for you to understand that, you have to kind of look in the minutia of the details of your life. When little things happen, it'll tell you where your heart is. Like a phone call comes in and you're looking and say, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to deal with that. I'll, I'll, I'll let that one go to voicemail. That's probably a good indicator of the person you need to be a servant to. Just a small little detail in your life that will indicate what's going on in your heart. We all have that within us. We all struggle with that. And um, we want greatness without humility. We want greatness, and I should even go further, we want greatness without humiliation. And Jesus says there's no path for that in heaven. There's no eternity for that. Yet Jesus lived it out every single day of his life. And so I, I think he wanted to drive this home, and so what does he do? He grabs a little boy, and he takes this child. It's actually a boy. It's actually a, a, a masculine term here. He takes this little boy, and he sets him before them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now, that one struck me a little bit, and I, I had to think about this some. And I, I don't know if I'm totally right on this. It's just kind of my thinking on it. But uh, a couple things that occurred to me is that, first of all, if you were, uh, this boy's under five. So he takes this little boy up in his arms. He's under five years of age by the, by the terms used here. And... Uh, in that day, anybody under five was unrecognized or clearly unimportant because the mortality rate in that day was you had a 40% chance of living to be five years old. So if you only had a 40% chance of living to be five, then people didn't see you as important or they didn't recognize you until you hit five years of age because they figured, we don't know if you'll be around or not. Now, I'm sure the mom didn't think that way about it, but ultimately, that's the way society looked at it. And so Jesus brings this boy and puts him before him, and he has him in his arms, and he says, okay, here's my representative, the unrecognized, the unimportant. Here's the one who goes in my name. And he says, whoever receives the least important one receives me, and if you receive me, then you receive the Father. I don't think he can make that any clearer. The unrecognized, the unimportant in our life. Now I got to thinking about this, and I still was just kind of musing this over in my head and running it through my mind. Why a child? Why a child? 
And I, I think there's probably lots of reasons here for a child, and I've heard different commentators make different things, but my, my heart kind of went, I started thinking through some of the children in the Bible, and this is the kind of thought that hit me. When David was a boy, he was 13 years of age, and God saw him at 13 years of age. God came along and said, you're a king. You're a king. He even said, I found a man, 13 years old, I found a man after my own heart. I will make him king over Israel. I think there's something to that that should be put into our lives, and I want to make sure you think about it, okay? God called him a king when he was a kid. A child. What that leads me to believe is there is a king in every kid. There's a king in every kid. Just trying to put it into an application for you, okay? Our role as servants who are willing to be last is to bring the king out of the kid. We've got to bring the kid, king, out of the kid. We've got to do it with people, though. We got to do it with people. Now, I think he's using a kid here for on purpose here. Okay, let me go a little deeper with that as parents, because I think you can get it as a parent, because you do it with your kids all the time. Parenting is the unraveling of the king in the kid. Isn't it amazing how you can see that? The unraveling of the king in your kid. You want your child to be great, so what do you do? You learn to be a servant to it. You learn to be a servant to your kid. Not a dictator. A dictator will never work with your kid. Not somebody who's disinterested and just into his career and doesn't have time for his kid and is working all the time. Not that, because that's not a servant. But a parent who gets that will be a servant to that kid. They'll be a servant to him. David was a kid with a king inside of him. See, I think you can understand this if you're a parent. Children do best when somebody believes in them. Children do best when somebody believes in them. I used to look at my kid and I said, let me tell you, you are better than this. They do something that was wrong or they do something they didn't like, I'd say, you are better than this. Why? Because I saw something in them even when they were doing wrong. You might be in a tough situation right now, son, but you are better than this. You're better than this. I used to say to my children all the time, you are too high to live so low. You are too high to live so low. Because I saw something in them they didn't see in themselves. That's what every parent sees. They see something in them that others don't see. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? They don't see the king in them. They're 13 years old. They're six years old. They don't see the king in them. But isn't it amazing? The kids, loved, the kids love to talk to people who see a king down inside of them. Now let me just transfer that to the real world. So do people. So do people. Do you see a king in me? That's what they want to know. God says, that's how you treat them. That's how you treat them. 
I know if I should do this, but I will. I don't want to lose my time here. If it's true there's a king in every kid, it's also true there's a kid in every king. I learned that as a papa. That when I enter into my king, grandkids' lives, they're not interested in my life. They're not interested in what I do. They don't want to sit down and study the books with me. They don't want to go to my office and sit there. If they come over here, they want to go shoot baskets. They want to go out to the playground. They don't ever want to enter my world. What I've had to learn is, if I'm going to know those grandkids, I've got to enter their world. I've got to enter into their world and serve them. And one of the ways I've learned is, there's a king in every kid, but there's also a kid in every king. When I play with my grandkids, out comes the kid. Out comes the kid. They have bought this new basketball setup. It's a cheap one on one end of the court. They live on a dead-end street, and they've, they've lined it out with chalk and everything. They got a 75-foot game with the center arc, the three-point shots, and then they got, bought this new uh, rim and basket uh, set. I don't even know what it is, but it's this huge thing. It goes back this far, and you crank the net to whatever you want, and it's super weighted, and so it'll go 10 foot down to 5 foot. Well, when they play basketball with me, they wanted to go to six foot. Because if they go to six foot, they can dunk on that. But I'm thinking to myself, no, we don't want it at six foot. And we don't want it at ten foot. We want it at eight foot. That's the height. Why eight foot? Well, I won't tell them this, but it's because I can dunk on it and none of them can. I can't dunk at 10 foot, all right? But you take Rob Decker and you put an 8-foot basket rim that high off the ground, he becomes Dr. J. I mean, he is Dr. J out there on the court because all of a sudden, it brings out the kid in me. And now I'm Dr. J. If I'm not Dr. J, surely I'm Joel Embiid. And if I'm not Joel Embiid, I'm the Vanilla Thunder. That's who I am when we play basketball. I'm the Vanilla Thunder. And I will move and do whatever I got to do. And so those kids, every time they shoot, three-point line, half court, wherever they're shooting from, they are shouting out somebody's name in professional NBA basketball, and then they take their shot after they do it. And so we're playing back and forth on this course. And how long are we going to play on this? And, and they said, we're going to play to 60. 60, are you kidding me? I'll make it to 10 and I'll be sitting on the sideline is what I'll be doing with them. But we go back and forth and what I found is it's an incredible thing as I've invested in my grandkids. I've seen this that I, I don't think I picked up on as a dad. I mean, I knew it was there, but it's, it occurred to me that suddenly as they're bringing the kid out in me, I'm bringing the king out in them. We're exchanging strengths. I'm giving something to them, they're giving something to me. It's an incredible thing to think about. I've never really put this together, but as I was thinking about it, I was teaching them how to be a man by teaching them how to enter into someone else's world. They didn't come into my world, I had to go into their world. That's the only way I can reach my grandkids. So I was teaching them how to be a man and enter into their world, and they were reminding me how to be a kid. That's a beautiful thing. I've, I've never really thought about that, but, but the, the, the interchange that goes on between the adult and the child is an amazing thing, reminding me how to be a kid, learning how to lighten up as a, as a grandpa, not to be so straight-laced so straight and rigid. Christians who are rigid will crack one day. 
because it's got to draw something out of you. And I think, I kind of, I'm not sure of this, but I think that's what Jesus is doing here, almost to say this kid represents the opportunity to bring out a king, but it brings out something inside of you at the same time. And let that kid out. Don't be kiddish, but, but be the kid that serves people. Serves people. That's, that's the investment you want to make, okay? So that's number one. You've got, to have, you've got to have that sense of humility, all right? That's number one. Let's go on. Number two, number two. Uh, I'm not going to get through this. Number two, discernment, discernment, all right? This is also about who is the greatest debate as well. This passage is touching on the same thing. John said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus said, do not hinder him. Do not hinder him. Why? If he's not against me, he's for me. He's for me. This, this is an incredible statement here, okay? Hey, hey, Jesus, we saw this guy casting out demons. Immediately we went over and said, hey, 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 wait a minute. Quit, quit. Stop it. You're not supposed to be doing that. Now, in the last chapter, they tried to do it, and they couldn't do it. They couldn't cast out the demon. But now they see somebody else casting out the demon in Jesus' name, and, and they're saying, stop. Because... What, is he, what do they say more specifically in the text? Uh, they weren't following us. That guy wasn't following us. They didn't say he wasn't following Jesus. He's not, they're not following you, Jesus. Us. Us. We're the right group, aren't we, Jesus? We're the right group. They're not. Jesus said, I'm working through them. Don't stop them. We don't need to worry about them. You don't need to worry about them. Because the disciples were jealous. Why aren't they following us? Jesus says, my kingdom is bigger than 13 people. They're for me. They're for me. Whoever casts out a demon or even gives a little cup of, cup of water in support of me, even that won't be forgotten because that person's supporting me. Now, this is, this is the spirit of toleration, the spirit of toleration that you've got to have with other Christians that aren't of your same stripe. We can differ with other Christians. It is not an issue of the essence of Christianity, okay? This is not an issue of the essence. There's some things we won't compromise in the essence of Christianity, but there are other things we just got to give leeway. There are some who won't do that, though. There are some people in some camps that if you have any difference from them and your beliefs are in any way different, you're not saved, you're not on your way to heaven, you're on your way to hell. Because you're not like us. You've got to dot it and cross it like us. They assume anybody that differs from them has to be on the road to hell. And by the way, there are plenty of groups like that. I don't want to be one of them. On the other side are the groups that say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, that's clearly wrong too, but he's not talking about that here in this context. What the, what the Bible is teaching us here, what Jesus is teaching us, is to discern between the essentials of Christianity and the non-essentials of Christianity. Now, in this case, the only real sin this unnamed exorcist has committed was he wasn't following the disciples. Jesus, that's not, that's not right. Don't do that. What I've had to learn from this and what I want to teach is uh, you, you just have to learn a lot. There are a lot of folks that don't do it like us. 
This is hard to somehow describe to you. Uh, someone was coming to join our church, and they said we came from a Presbyterian church, and they baptized infants uh, over there. What do you think about that? Well, I'm going to tell them what I think about that, but let me, let me just tell you what I want you to hear from that, okay? That little conversation I had with them, okay? Infant baptism, uh, number one, we can't both be right. We can't be, both be right on that subject. Either God is pleased with infants being baptized or he is not pleased with infants being baptized. Somebody has to be wrong on that and somebody has to be right. That's the truth. Now, now we know who's right, okay? We know who's right. <laughs> but I described to this person, the only thing I see in the New Testament is saved first, baptized, and added to the church. I, I see that as the pattern in the New Testament. Um, it is an issue, and, and there are people that differ with us on that. But, but I truly believe this. Both sides want to please God. Both sides want to please God. And, and the truth of the matter is, the difference is important, okay? We, we have a teaching here, and we don't teach infant baptism for a reason, because we just don't see that taught in the New Testament directly, because how does a child get saved first before they're baptized? Okay, now I know they have explanations because I've got some Presbyterian pastor friends. I've heard them. But what I am saying to you is, as a pastor, I don't believe for a moment, as important as that issue is, that it is of the essence of Christianity. It is possible that we could come down, both of us could come down on different sides and still be redeemed, still be saved, and both be justified in the sight of God. There's lots of folks that don't do it like us. We're, we're going to give an account for how we do it, but there's a lot of folks that don't, but they're ministering in the name of Jesus. And we must appreciate authentic ministry wherever we find it. And I also believe we also have to distance ourselves from heresy wherever we find it. So we've, we've got to find that balance, but there's things of Christianity that are of essence around the person and work of Christ, but there are some things that are not of essence. And we've got to figure that out, and you've got to figure that out. What's required? Discernment. Discernment is one of the things that God wants you to do with people that aren't of your stripe. He wants you to discern their teaching, discern their direction. Je Jesus said, you guys have been with me three years, and you still don't have discernment. Jesus says, appreciate, appreciate everything done in the name of Jesus, even those who give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. It doesn't save a person. He just says, I'm going to make sure that person is honored. I'm going to make sure that person is honored. That's, that's the idea, discernment. Let's go on. I've got to move away. Number three, sacrifice. Sacrifice is the third word of eternality for what it would take to be great in eternity and even now. He says to him there in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believed to stumble would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he had been cast into the sea. Now, a lot of people just think that means the little child. It can include the little child, but it's more than that. The, really, the idea of the word is not just a child, but it means the simple Christian, the not sophisticated and learning Christian. They, they haven't gotten sophisticated in their walk. They have kind of a childlike faith, but they haven't really grown in their faith. But they seek to be faithful to Christ. That's the little one there. And if someone comes along and is puffed up and arrogant and causes the simple Christian to stumble 
and not go according to God's word, the person exposes himself to great chastisement. Now, who is this? This could be a pastor. This could be a leader in our church. This could be people who are oversighting others. And the idea here, a teacher, for example, or of a seminary college, it could be a liberal seminary. It could be a secular university that attacks the faith of young students and tries to get them to doubt in their heart and undermine their faith in Christ. Jesus said, it'd be better for you who mislead these people. You mislead these college students. You mislead others that are young in the faith and you undermine their faith. It'd be better for you than a millstone. What's a millstone? Let me show you a picture. Here's a, here's a donkey using a millstone, that little round object there were crushing the flower. Jesus said it'd be good to take that millstone, tie it around your neck, and to be cast into the sea. He's not saying that will be your punish, punishment, but he says think about that punishment for a minute. Okay? He said, let me tell you something. That's a better option than where you're going. That's what he's saying. He's saying that there has to be this sacrifice made in terms of the sensitivity to others that can be led by your life and not to mislead them in any way. This is an important thing about being great in the eternal kingdom is this sense of being aware of this, of who you lead and impact by your opinions, by your attitudes, by what you say. Does it match with Scripture? And so that, that's a very sobering thought there at all levels. But then Jesus' minds shift to things that, that uh, are inside of the leader himself that leads him astray. And he says, now you've got to sacrifice those things. What's the rest of the principles here? The rest of the principles are this. If you want to be great in the eternal kingdom, the first thing you want to do is you want to look to the end. You want to look to the end of your life and where you're going to end up. That's, that's really the weight of this. Make the choice now and make the decision now based on your end. And so what he's saying is, you as my followers, he's not talking about losing your, your Christianity here. He's saying there's something inside of you that will take drastic measures to deal with your flesh. You'll sacrifice certain things within yourself. Your hands want to do certain things they shouldn't do. Uh, Jesus says it's better to cut one off. He's just, he's just using hyperbole there. He's just exaggerating to show you that there are some things naturally in you that you're going to be hard on your flesh. You want to be great in eternity? Be hard on your flesh now. Okay? Now, he's using it in a way that, that he's not just saying, oh, you're going to go to hell if you do those things. He is talking about people who live a lifestyle of that. People who live a lifestyle of never cutting off their hand, never being harsh or drastic with their hands or their eyes and what they see, and they just keep living the same lifestyle, yeah, yeah. They've proved they're going to hell, okay? So they've never taken the measures to deal with their eyes. They've never taken the measure to deal with their hands. They've never taken the measure to deal with their feet. It's where they go, what they do, and what they see. They're just kind of coasting in life, and they don't take their end seriously. And so he's saying, take that seriously because there really is a place called hell. Gehenna is the word there. Whatever is precious, whatever sin is precious to you in your life, Jesus says take drastic measures because it's not worth it. Don't keep practicing those things that prove you never really had the faith. It's not someone who's a Christian that messes up and does wrong and they won't go to heaven now because of it. No, that's not what he's saying. He, he, he's really just trying to get you to see that there are some sacrifices you will have to make in your life that deal with just yourself. 
And that's sobering. It's sobering to think about this. Um, when I look back at the 10 years I preached in the 20th century, hell was preached harder than it is today. When I look at the 21st century, the last 23 years, the doctrine of hell has basically disappeared from most churches. Now, when you're doing a study verse by verse, you don't have the luxury of just skipping over this. So let me just take a minute. How much time have you spent reflecting on your final destiny? The Bible says, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. I love what Jonathan Edwards said. This is what got my thinking going. The most wicked person in the world constantly assumes that he will escape the judgment of hell, leading them into a false sense of security. It's amazing. The most wicked person in the world Constantly assumes he will escape the judgment of hell. Well, God won't punish me. Maybe you should finish the sentence. Well, God hasn't punished you yet. Yet. See, that's why it's such a sobering thought for all of us. It's not that we have to worry about losing our salvation, but there is something inside us that says, I, I want to get this right for eternity. I want to get this right. I want to I wanna take some drastic measures with my own flesh. Now, the first thing I want you to hear on this is there's no writer in the Bible who talks more about hell than Jesus. And I believe if Jesus didn't talk about hell and only Peter and Paul and all the other apostles did, you know what people would do today just like they're doing transgender and the homosexuality debates? They're saying, well, Jesus never said anything about that. Peter and Paul did, but Jesus never said anything but Jesus says more about hell than any other writer in the Bible, which is an amazing, it's kind of a heavy thought. Um, he, he describes it in the most ghastly and gruesome images of punishment that he could think of. And, and I would just caution you, don't compare hell to anything in this life, okay? Because you won't even come close. I know people will say war is hell, not like real hell. I, I, I've heard people say, I've been going through hell, or my life has been hell on earth. Now, maybe you've heard that, or maybe you've said that, but the truth of the matter is, you have no clue about the reality of hell. It's a sobering thought. It's a sobering thought. You have no clue. I don't have any clue. I have, the best I've got is what Jesus tells me. Even the worst person who suffers today, still has a measure of the grace of God on their life. They still have the grace of this life. And so they don't come close to a place called hell. But to be removed totally from the mercy and grace of God, to be totally separated from God, no one's experienced that in this life except those who are there in the damned. Now, what happens today and what you're seeing in a lot of circles in religion is some are trying to say hell's not eternal. It's a place you go into annihilation. You just kind of burn out of existence. You know why? Because you cannot mentally handle the concept of hell. And so that, that uh, belief has come around for the last, really, 2,000 years. They just believe you'll draw your last breath, and that's it. You go into kind of an eternal unconsciousness, and you just go into oblivion, and you're blotted out of existence. The problem I see with that is, in some way, haven't they gotten away with their cosmic rebellion? That theory has been deemed heretical for 2,000 years. There's nowhere it teaches it in the Bible. 
and yet it's still around for 2,000 years. I'll be honest with you, I struggle with an eternal hell. I struggle with it. I get it. I can't contemplate it. And, and it, it, it is tough to think it through, but here are three refrains. Jesus says, the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. He says that'll happen with those three times, the refrain. Now the word hell there is the word Gehenna, Gehenna. It is a physical place on earth that he's using to describe what hell will be like. He's just trying to get you to get the images, and he uses the word Gehenna. Gehenna was in the southeastern wall of Jerusalem. Let me show you a red circle around it where Gehenna was in that day. It is in the southeast corner of Jerusalem, the valley of Hanum. It was a steep ravine. And the reason Jesus used this is because in, there was many kings in Israel that would worship Molech. He was the god of the fire. And the way to worship him is you had to throw your child, your oldest child, into the fire. And you would put him on this beast face with his arms out of iron under the fire, and then you'd burn your baby alive right there in his arms. And that was what they started to practice with the kings of Israel. A hundred years later, Josiah did reforms because he was convicted over what God was doing. And the very first thing he, to, he, he did away with was to deconsecrate that place of human sacrifice. And he turned it into a garbage dump so no one would ever use it again. And no one's used it to this day, by the way, since Josiah. And what he did in making it a garbage dump, he said, bring all your refuse there, bring all your animal skins, bring all your waste, and they would cart it there and they would light it on fire. And what they would do with that fire is they would just keep bringing every day their trash and their sacrifice or whatever it was, the animal skins or whatever from their sacrifice, and they just keep pouring it on the fire. And the fire never went out. They never had to reignite it in the days of Josiah because the fire would never go out. And then the worms would gather at this garbage dump because they would have the carcasses of those animal sacrifices, so the worm always had a food supply because they were parasites, and so they would feed off the host. As long as there was a host, they'd be fine. If there's no host, they die. But there's always a host at the garbage dump because people are bringing their garbage every day, and so the idea is that those new hosts were always there and the worm always lived. Those are the dreadful images Jesus uses to paint a picture of hell. The worm doesn't die. It feeds off the host, and the fire never goes out. No water is ever poured on it. Jesus says, see that? That's the judgment waiting for many who've rejected me. That's the judgment who've lived out just their flesh. And they've just lived that out their whole life. He said, it's better to cut off your foot, cut off your eye, cut off your hand or, or pluck out your eye than to end up in a place like that. And that would be true because nothing is more valuable than the kingdom of God and nothing is worse than the abode of the damned. That's heavy stuff. I know it is. But where will you be going this summer? Do you know yet? Have you planned your summer? Where will you be in 100 years? You'll be somewhere. You'll be conscious and you'll be awake. You'll be somewhere. And it's a serious thing to think about. Will you be among the damned or you'll be in the eternal state of joy with Jesus Christ? Jesus says if it takes an arm, a leg, or an eye now, <laughs> make sure you're there. Make sure you're there. 
So what he's telling us as Christians is it's not that you lose your salvation, but take drastic measures to deal with your flesh. Those are the ones that are great in heaven. For those that live a lifestyle of that, that's where you're headed. You don't deal with any of those things in your life. Terrible place to end. Let's pray. Just with your head bowed, your eyes closed, I... I've given you an outline, a recipe for greatness. I want you to go forth today. I want you to see the king and the kid. I want you to see it in everyone. Everyone you come in contact. I want you to look for that king. I want you to have some discernment with other people that follow God like we don't. And I want you to discern, discern. Essentials from non-essentials. The central message of the gospel and what it takes to actually go to heaven. Jesus died on a cross as a sacrifice for your sin. That your sin must be repented of and you must turn to Jesus Christ and say, Jesus, save me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. That's not easy, but that's the first step. There's a willingness in your heart to do that. God will save you, and then he'll begin to work on you. He'll do his work. I'm assured of that. Just let him make you into a new creature. Won't be perfect. You'll still have some issues, but he wants to save you. Have some discernment with people of the essence of the gospel. I want to speak to you here if there's a, there's a person in here that I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just trying to give you the truth. You've never given your life to Jesus Christ. You've never repented of your sin. Never turned and said, Jesus, I'm guilty. My sin deserves judgment. I want to make you my Lord. I want to make you my Savior. I don't want to go to hell. I want to serve you. If that's your prayer, would you just, right where you are, heads bowed, eyes closed. Would you just lift up your hand and say, that, that's me. That's me. Just lift it up right now. Yes. Is there another? Lift it up. Let me see it. I can see it as I'm looking around. Yes, I see that hand. Is there another? Okay, so two hands. I just want you to pray this prayer right now, quietly at your seat. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. My sin deserves judgment. I know you love me and you died for me and you became the sacrifice for my sin the payment for my sin I receive you as Lord and Savior save me now you two who raised your hands if you prayed that prayer you meant it from your heart I believe with all my heart you're saved You're at the beginning of a walk with Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. We want to help you here. We're going to give you the truth. We're going to help to lead you. We're going to do the best that we can. And we want to know. We want you to take a moment. Just fill out a card. And just let us know. I received Christ today. You can turn it into a greeter. You can bring it up to me at the hospitality room. But please let us know so we can help you in your walk and your faith. 
Father, I commit this time to you now. As the praise team sings, we honor you. We truly do want to be great in your kingdom. God, may we seek that with all our heart. In Jesus' name, I pray this over this church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to sing this morning. Of course, the altar is open. If God's laid something on your heart you want to bring before you, the praise team is going to sing for us now.